Alright, we're going to continue on in 1 Timothy. So our title tonight's message, or our study tonight, I titled it, Healthy Pastors, Healthy Churches. Healthy Pastors, Healthy Churches. And so when we're looking at, through that lens of that title, Healthy Pastors, Healthy Churches, or it could be titled Healthy Pastors, Equal Healthy Churches, that's kind of the context of what we're going to look at, 1 Timothy 5. And just to kind of refresh our memory of where we're at and what Paul is doing in his writing, you know, Paul is addressing issues within the church at Ephesus. And we've hit this every single Wednesday that, you know, there are things that are not in order, things that are not right in the function of the church. And one of the main issues in the church at Ephesus is the issue of false teaching. And so before Paul sent Timothy there and set him in in place, False teaching had risen up. Some men who had uh, bad motives in their heart began to infiltrate the church and began to teach things that did not accord with sound doctrine. And so Paul sent Timothy to correct these issues. And so as a strength to Timothy, Paul wrote two letters to him. And that's where we get 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And throughout 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul just does practical pastoral work in Timothy's life. To encourage him to set this in order. And this is how a church should function. This is what the priority of the church should be. This is how a pastor should live. This is what a pastor's life should look like. This is this is what the roles of men and women are in the church. This is how the church should take care of widows. This is on and on and on. He talked to Timothy about how the church should function. And then he specifically dealt with Timothy in Timothy's heart as concerning being intimidated against the false teachers, intimidated that people would look at him and say that he was not qualified and he was not fit for the work. And so he was charging Timothy. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 4, at the the very end, in 2 Timothy, uh, excuse me, at the very end, the last chapter, Timothy, Paul charges Timothy. He says, preach the word. There's anything that you're going to do, you need to preach the word. That's the main calling of, of a pastor. So this is the context. This is what's going on. So he's setting things in order in the church. And so specifically in this section of chapter 5, he's dealing specifically with the issue of, of pastors and how the church should respond to pastors and by honoring and respecting them and how the church should respond when a pastor, when there's a false accusation against a pastor, against an elder, when there's a false, when there's an accusation that comes, what should you do? How do you respond when somebody says, well, pastor so-and-so did this and did that and it's immoral, it's bad behavior? What's the, the, the course of action? Well, Paul lays out the course of action here. And then the third thing he deals with is what do you do? The accusation comes and it's true. And you confront the pastor and they don't repent. What do you do then? And so it's very practical. But I I don't want us to lose sight of the big picture here. The big picture here is that God wants healthy churches. He wants our churches to be healthy. And so before we get into this subject, I I just want to, I wrote down this statement here to kind of introduce this subject. Unhealthy, spiritually unqualified pastors. Unhealthy. Spiritually unqualified pastors have negatively influenced the cultural view of full-time pastors and ministers. Unhealthy, 
unfaithful, spiritually unqualified pastors that we have seen throughout church history have negatively influenced people's the cultural view of ministers who work for the gospel. And you know it to be true. You've experienced those times where this prominent pastor on TV or a prominent pastor in a church in an area that you're from, they're, they're embroiled in scandal, they did something with money, they did something in an immoral way sexually, and, and, and it's a scandal rocks, rocks, this, rocks the church, rocks the city, and it impacts the entire nation. And so situation after situation like that, there's, a, there's this, this constant buildup of being uh, jaded towards towards pastors and towards ministers and this this view that that all ministers are like that just give them a little bit of time and that's what's going to end up happening and so i've met and talked with people throughout the years being in ministry and i've been raised in church and i've experienced firsthand situations like i'm talking about and i've spoken with cynical people who have basically given up on the church basically said you know there's just there's no hope for ministers and pastors, because they're all the same. They're all after the money, or they're after the women. And that's, that's a stereotype that people can have, and that has kind of built up. And so, in this context, in First Timothy, you had people that were after power. Pastors, elders, false teachers, they were after power, after control. And they were, they had bad motives in their heart, and they had come into the church and so Paul is telling Timothy, you, first of all, you got to address these issues. He said, but at the same time, I want to prepare the way for you that as you faithfully lead and as you hold up the truth of God's word and God's standard and God's truth and you're faithful in your integrity and in, in your character and how you preach the word, that the people of the church are going to honor you and respect you and take care of you. And so... That's the context of what we're, we're dealing with. So let's look at the text. We're going to read the verses and we will try our best to unpack it. First Timothy five, verse 17, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then secondly, the laborer deserves his wages. Verse 19, do, do not admit a charge against an elder, pastor, it's the, same, it's the same word, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Now, I forgot to mention this. This is the other area that we're going to deal with, dealing with the issue of being too quick to put somebody in pastoral ministry. So this is the fourth area that we're going to touch on. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's the hands of ordination and blessing. You remember Matt Carnes a few uh, weeks back on Sunday? Pastor Nate pulled him up, laid hands on him. We ordained him and set him in to pastoral ministry. It says don't be hasty in doing that nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. We'll, we'll touch on that scripture. 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. They're inconspicuous. 
So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. All right, you guys ready to unpack that? Some interesting verses there. So, having, just before we get into uh, unpacking those verses, there's a couple little quotes here, things that, that I wrote down. Having healthy, faithful pastors is a necessity for any congregation. Paul is trying to set in order the mess, set in order the mess that had developed in the church at Ephesus because of the lack of strong, faithful pastoral care. A church, that's why I titled the message this, Healthy Pastors, Healthy Church. Healthy Pastor, Healthy Church. Because that is a reality. A, it is a necessity to have a pastor in a church that is faithful, that walks in integrity, that has character, that is above reproach, that holds up the truth of Scripture and rightly divides it and is faithful to the text and is not intimidated to preach the truth because of what people might say or might think. That is so That is so necessary in any church, but particularly in our culture and time, whenever the idea of truth is, is that truth is relative and that there is no right and wrong and no truth. We need pastors in this type of culture to preach the truth unapologetically, full of compassion and not just preach it, but have a life that is modeled by integrity, that they live what they preach. That is so necessary for any church. And Paul is addressing those issues. So how should the church respond and care for and treat faithful pastors? And then also, how should the church respond to unfaithful pastors? So that's that, those are the answers we're, we're, we're going to answer. So the first, the first answer to that question is the first verse, verse 17. The first point is this. We should honor the pastors who lead well. Honor the pastors who, who lead well. That's verse 17 and 18. Let's read it a second time. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. It is a blessing for any church to have pastors who lead who lead well. Have, have, have any of you ever been a part of a dysfunctional church? I've been part of a dysfunctional church. I think most people at some time or other have been part of a dysfunctional church. Now, most people, when they start attending church any length of time, they eventually run into what they think is dysfunction. And then they, then they leave and then they go find another church that they think is dysfunctional. And then they leave and you can end up in a cycle of thinking that all churches are dysfunctional. Well, churches aren't all dysfunctional. People are dysfunctional, and that's the issue. And so there are no perfect churches. So we're not going to ever come to a church that's perfect. We'll never find that. You're never going to find pastors that are perfect. You're never going to find leaders that are perfect. You're never going to find anybody that's perfect because we're all in process. We're all growing. We're all changing. But you can have churches that are faithful that are good, that have good, solid, faithful leaders and pastors that walk in integrity and character for the length of their leadership. And they have great, strong pastors and leaders that work under them. And, and it's such a blessing to have that because especially if you've been in a dysfunctional church, you know what it's like to sit under leadership that maybe is domineering. You ever sat under a domineering pastor that is this... He has this uh, ultra ego and he rules with an iron fist and it's his way or the highway and he can't be wrong. He can't be confronted. He, he is it. 
Anybody ever experienced that? Maybe not a pastor, but maybe like a boss. Maybe experienced somebody like that. It's horrible to live under that, to work under that. And people, people can live under spiritual oppression within churches with pastors who are, who don't model servant leadership, who don't look like Christ in their service. Then you can, then there's lots of people who sit under ministries and, and they, they give their heart to the ministry. They give their devotion to the church. Firstly, they're, they're devoted to Christ and His plan and purposes, but they realize that in the local, in the context of a local church, that God wants them to serve and function, so they give themselves to that, and then their pastor lets them down. Maybe it is a moral failure. Maybe it is they did something wrong with the money, or they had an immoral behavior sexually, and so they become jaded in their thinking. So anytime you come from those type of contexts, when you find yourself in a local church where the pastor and the pastors have been faithful and have been steady and have been consistent. They teach the word of God faithful. Man, what a blessing. What a privilege. And I just want you to know that's where, that's where we're at. And I'm going to exclude myself from the conversation. This is awkward. I prayed before I came. I was like, Lord, I'm, this is kind of just a, a, a very awkward conversation to have with people in church. But I'm going to speak about Pastor Renee tonight. Not about myself. I've got a few years on me. He's got 38 years here. Got quite a few. And there's people in here like Clyde and Teresa and Gloria and others that have been here a very long time. Mr. Charles and Marilyn Guffey. Don't, if I don't say your name, I know you've been here a long time too. <laughs> but a couple have been here a long time. And if we start talking to them, they've probably disagreed with Pastor Renee. Miss Vicky about some things. Probably not always seen eye to eye with them. But I know for sure that there's not been a mark against his character. There's never been a mark against his character. He's faithfully taught God's word. If there was an accusation, it's been unfounded. I, I remember he, he told me one time there was an accusation that came against him and it was, it was unfounded. It was dealt with and the steps that we're talking about were, 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 were walked through. But there was, there's never been an accusation against him that has been founded. He's been good with the money. I mean, look at the building that we have right here. This is, I don't know the exact estimations, maybe Clyde can tell me, but I would think maybe somewhere around $15 million value of just this building. And it took us, it cost about 8 to $10 million. Something like that. 7 to $8 million. And it took, I don't know, eight to ten years to actually build the building, whatever the time frame was. It was de- it's built debt free. I mean, we don't owe a penny on any of the 90 acres or the building. That is just amazing. The, the, the legacy that Pastor Renee is going to leave in this church is phenomenal. The fact that there, there, there has not been a, a blight on his character and that he's leaving a debt-free building to the future of this church, debt-free property, that we're not sitting under the estimates of maybe sixty dollars to $70,000 a month note on that type of loan to build this building is such a testament to his, to his faithfulness, to his integrity, to his desire to do what is right, to be a good steward. And so when we sit in a church like this, under leadership like that, we should say, God, thank you. 
Thank you that you have placed us here. Thank you that, 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 that I have the privilege of sitting under a pastor like that, under ministers like that. Now, again, just like I said earlier, you may get mad at the pastors here from time to time. And you may disagree with Pastor Renee, things that he preaches. You may disagree with things that, that I preach. But that's going to be like that at any church that you go to. What you're looking for is the big picture, the overall picture. Who are they? What, what is their character? Who are they as men? Do they, and primarily, do they faithfully teach God's word? The primary function, I said this when I started the, the message, the primary function of a pastor is to teach God's word. When it's all boiled down, a pastor's job is to take the Bible and to explain it to you. That's it. That's the primary job. We explain it from the pulpit. We explain it in the counseling session. We explain it on the phone call, in the hospital visit. We explain it to you when, we, when we're talking to you in the foyer. We, we take the word of God. We pour it in our hearts. We study it. We learn it. We pray over it. We, under, we try to study the meanings in the original languages, in the Hebrew and the Greek. And, and, and we pray that God would help us to explain it. We pray that God would help us to live it. And then when we are in the pulpit, when we're interacting with God's people, we teach it. We explain it. That's what a pastor does. And I reference 2 Timothy 4. This is, this is the end of Timoth- Paul's instruction to Timothy. And we'll eventually get to, to 2 Timothy as we go through this study. But we're going to look at the end. This is, this is if you're going to give a final charge to, to, to Timothy, what are you going to say, Paul? This is what he says. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God. God th- this is so important. He's saying, God is watching, Timothy, and of Christ Jesus who is the judge of the living and the dead. I'm telling you, Timothy, God's watching you. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And this is your responsibility. Preach the word. Preach the word. Teach the word. That's the job of a pastor. And so when you come under the pastoral care of a pastor who is faithful, walks in integrity and character, what a blessing. And that's what Paul is saying. And, but here's what he's doing. Paul is contrasting between those who have not been leading well, primarily those who have not dealt with false teaching, and he's contrasting that with those who will lead well, like Timothy. And he's trying to prepare the way for Timothy, that as he leads well and he is faithful, that the church will bless him and honor him. And that's what the text says. Those that do... Those who do that faithfully, those who preach the word faithfully, are worthy of double honor. So what does that mean? Double honor. That word honor, when you read in the original languages, that word honor means, means blessing. It means, it means uh, respect. It means reverence. It means uh, showing favor towards. And, and, and it even has, which is the context of this section, it has a monetary meaning to it at, at the core of what he's saying there. So the picture there is that those who labor, who labor well in preaching and teaching, that they would, they, they would be blessed with double honor. And so, and that's when he gets into those next two verses. Let's go back to uh, 17 and 18. I just want to look at 17 real quickly. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially... Those who labor in preaching and teaching. And that word labor right there, 
When you read, when you study that word labor out, it means labor to the point of exhaustion. Those who give themselves, the pastors who give themselves primarily to preaching and teachings, they are worthy of double honor. And here's what, here, he's, here's how he's going to prove his point. For the scripture says, and this is found in Deuteronomy 25.4, he's referencing 25.4, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 25.4. And the principle, the picture of that verse is, is that when an ox is treading out the grain, and he's working hard, laboring, working hard, treading out the grain, don't put an ox, don't, don't, don't cover his mouth. Let him partake in the fruit of his labor. As he is laboring and working to produce a harvest, let him consume some of what he is producing. And then he, and then he explains it a second way. He says, and the laborer, the, that person who labors over the study of God's word so he can teach it, deserves his wages. And so that's the context. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? You know, me and Clyde were talking this morning about church, churches and church sizes. And, you know, the average church in America is somewhere around 150 to 160, maybe 180 people. We are a rare church. We, on Sundays, we probably have around anywhere from 12 to 1400 people who will attend service. Sometimes on an Easter Sunday or on a Christmas, we might get up to 15 plus that will come. And so we are very rare. We are, we are a large church. And the vast majority of pastors are not full-time in ministry. But our church has six full-time pastors on staff, if I'm correct. And we have two, three, excuse me, three now with Matt Carnes, three part-time pastors on staff. So this scripture is not saying that all pastors should be full-time because that's just not going to happen. But what it is saying is that every church that has a pastor that's, that's ruling well and is leading well, because it is, the, it, is, it is such a blessing to have that, that it should be the overflow desire of the heart of the people to bless them from the fruit of their labor. That's just what the scripture is saying. And so the picture there of double honor is not that we should make our preachers rich. We see the extremes of that. Anybody ever seen those? You got to, the pastor's got to drive a Rolls Royce and got to have the biggest house. And, and, and that, that's extreme and that's excess and that is not biblical and scriptural. And so, but if it is within the power of the church to provide for the pastors of the church that are leading well and, and are faithful, then it is, the, it is a blessing for the church to be able to provide for the pastors as they labor in the preaching and teaching and the pastoring of the congregation. This is what Paul is saying. And he, but he's saying it, he's contrasting it against those who are not leading well. And for me, I see he's setting the stage for Timothy. That as Timothy is going to have to be working really hard to combat this false teaching... He's going to have to be really working hard to combat against what these false teachers have done in Ephesus. And he's preparing the way for the people in this church as this letter is going to be read amongst the church. That they, 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 they have experienced the effects of this false teaching and these false teachers. And Timothy is coming in to come and set those things in order. And he's going to be living faithful. And so he's preparing the way for the church to see that Timothy is going to be an amazing blessing to them. And that he needs to be able to devote himself to that in the ministry. And that the church is going to want to bless him to do that. So that's the first principle that we're dealing with. Those who do that faithful are worthy of double honor. And so 
We should honor those who lead well. Is money the only way that we honor those who lead well? No. Money is not the only way, but the text is talking about money. It's unavoidable. You know, like, so I think sometimes uh, we don't like to read text like that because we just we talk about money. It gets a little weird and everything. But the Bible, all scripture is inspired and it's there for a reason and a purpose. And the, the, the practicality is, is that to run this church, to pastor this church, it takes people that, that would devote their life to pastoral ministry. And so those who lead well. It's a blessing for us to be able to, to, to honor them and, and to bless them. And money's not the only way that we can honor them. We, we, we honor them by being careful with what we say about them. We honor them by praying for them, by respecting them, by being a blessing to them, being a support to them. So the first principle about how the church should respond and care for faithful pastors, they should honor the pastors who lead well. Let's go on to number two. Let's look at verse. Let's read verse 19. You guys still with me? Okay. You can hang me and tie me up and hang me later. <laughs> Verse 19. I'm not after your money. I just, just want you to know that. I did ministry for free for over a decade. And if I never had another dime, I'd go get a job back at Safeguard or Tacadian now. I'd get me a job and I'd come preach here on Wednesdays and Sundays. I'd do it for free. Because it's a fire in my bones. And I didn't say that for your claps, but anyway. <laughs> Just ask my wife. Somebody told her on Sunday, they, they, they thanked her for letting me preach. They said, thank you for letting Ben preach. And she said, I couldn't stop him if I tried. <laughs> First Timothy 519. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so this is the second principle that Timothy is dealing with here. So here's Paul is, is dealing with. So here's what's going on. Again, there's these false teachers. There's these accusations against these people that are coming up. So what's the standard operating procedure for dealing with an accusation against a pastor, against an elder? It's got to come from the mouth of two or three witnesses. So the second point is this, that, that the church should protect faithful pastors from false accusations. The church should protect faithful pastors from false accusations. So Paul is establishing guidelines for how to deal with an accusation against a pastor. But this principle of the mouth of two or three witnesses came first from Jesus. Let's look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20. This is the issue of a, when, when, when a brother sins against you, how are you to respond? It says, Verse 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so the principle there that Jesus is laying out is that when there's a sin against a brother, when there's an accusation, that, that it should be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. You know, in, in the life of 
a church. And, you know, there's going to be accusations that rise up, not only between brothers and sisters in Christ, but, but against ministers. You know, when you're, when you're in the forefront and you do a lot of talking, you know, you're going to say things that people disagree with. Or when you're in, you know, there's opportunities that can come up where you may have to, to uh, talk with somebody and they can miscue what you say and use it against you if you're doing a, a lot of counseling as a pastor. And so there's lots of opportunities in the, in the life of a church for pastors to have false accusations brought against them. And, you know, I've seen that many times in my parents' lives. I've seen that in other ministers' lives where things that were not true were said and people have left churches over things that weren't true. So it's important when it's a, a, a real accusation against the character of a pastor, when it's an accusation within the body of Christ, that we should deal with it like that. That we should say, if, if, if you have sin, if, I have, if you have ought in your heart towards me, or vice versa, we should go to each other. If I'm offended, if Miss Gloria offended me, and have ought against her, and she sinned against me, I should go to her and say, Miss Gloria, what were you thinking? <laughs> no. She go to her and say, Miss, Miss Gloria, I just have to tell you, you have sinned against me and you've hurt me. And we need to deal with that. Miss Gloria says, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. It's not true. Well, then you, scripture says there to take, get two or three more people, come and confirm what happened. Get two witnesses, come and confront her again. She refuses after that. Then it says that you should go before the church. Now, there's two different types of ideas there within that context. Some people say, well, you mean you got to go before the whole congregation and say, on a Sunday morning, Miss Gloria Cunningham has done this or that. I don't necessarily believe that's, the, that's what's being said there. But what I believe is, is in principle, it's to go to the elders, to the pastors of the church and say privately with them, here's what, is, here's what has happened. Gloria is an unrepentant sinner. She's refusing to repent. <laughs> and so the scripture says there, Jesus says, that the way we should respond to her is to say, I mean, this is just scriptures. I, I don't, don't hate on the spokesman. Hate on the Bible if you don't believe it. But it says that we should look at an unrepentant person and say, if you are refusing to repent, and you are in a position of being a, a member, and you have the blessing of the church, that we are going to remove that blessing and say, you're unrepentant. You are, you are, you've gone through this process of someone confronting you two or three times. You've gone, we, we've confronted you in, in front of the, the, the elders of the church, and you're saying, no, it's not who I am. Well, it's our responsibility to say, well, then you no longer have the blessing of being a member of this church. Now, you're welcome to attend. You're welcome to come and Stay in the services, but we're not going to give you our blessing as being a member of the church. Now, what's the point of that? Why would we do that? The point is to get them to repent. You know, if somebody is an unrepentant sinner and they believe that they're okay with God. They believe they're right with God. And we don't ever do anything about it. Do we love them? Are we, are, no, are, are we loving them by doing nothing about it? Would I be loving to Miss Gloria if I did nothing about that? If she was living in unrepentant sin? No, it's unloving to do that. So I want her to repent so that she can be free and so that she can be right with the Lord. So that's the principle in Matthew 18. And it's the same principle in First Timothy. 
that if there is an accusation, you want to deal with it with the, with the pastor. You want to make sure that, that if it's true, well, then we need to confront him. If it's not true, we need to make sure that it's not true. And here's one reason why, in, in, in the issue of a pastor, why it's important to confront it. This is a quote from a, a commentary book that I was reading this afternoon. It says, because of the public nature of the pastor's position, failure to dismiss false accusations would undermine the trust of the congregation with their pastor. So because of the public nature of my position, if there's an accusation that's out amongst the people and it's not dealt with and word spreads, people, even, even if it's not true, people will still believe it. Trust me. People, people are quick to believe bad reports. Even if it's completely not true. So this is why I think Paul is dealing, putting this issue, putting this principle there. If there is an accusation, it's got to be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. All right? So, we've got an accusation against me, against Pastor Clyde, against Pastor Renee. Just know we, we're going to vet that accusation. We're going to make sure that it's true. And here's the next step. If it is true, accusation against me is true. Here's what Paul says that Timothy should do. Let's look at verse 20 and 21. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them. Now, this is talking about a pastor. Now, this is different than what I talked to you about in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, it's the picture of a brother and sister. This is specifically speaking about elders and pastors. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and do nothing from partiality. Don't, don't just show the pastor's partiality by not, by, 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 by not confronting him. Don't be partial to them if they're persisting in sin. And you need to let the church know why you have set them aside, why they have to step down. So that the whole church may reverence God. So the third point he's bringing out here is that we should uphold a standard of integrity for pastoral leadership. That's what Timothy, that's what Paul is telling Timothy here. That there are pastors that are living in sin, not living rightly. We need to uphold a standard of integrity for pastoral leadership. Because of the level of responsibility that a pastor has been given, the level of accountability must be equally high. Because of the level of responsibility of a pastor, because I am called to teach the word, then I have to be accountable to live the word. That's what the book of James says. James chapter 3, the context of, of this verse in James 3.1 is the issue of taming the tongue. And so in the context of taming the tongue, this is what James says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This is a commentary by A.R. Fawcett. This is what he says about that in James 3. The office of a pastor, a teacher, is a noble one. But few are fit for it. Few govern the tongue well. This is what James 3 is talking about. Few govern the tongue well. And only such as can govern it are fit for the office. Therefore, teachers ought not to be many. James, in a humble conciliatory conciliatory spirit includes himself if we teachers abuse the office we shall receive greater condemnation than those who are mere hearers and so we have to uphold as a church we have to uphold a standard of integrity for those who are called into pastoral ministry 
And so if there's an accusation against a pastor, against a leader, against an elder, specifically a pastor in ministry, because it's got, it's got to be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. If it's true and the pastor refuses to repent and it's been confirmed that it's true, they're to be removed from that position. And it is the right thing to do to come before the church and to say, brother so-and-so, brother Ben, this is what this is. He, he walked in an immoral way and he is being removed. He walked in a sinful way. He's being removed from his position of leadership. That's what scripture says should happen. And, the, and what happens there is that it speaks to the church, to the congregation, that living word church or this church values integrity. That the highest people are not above the law. How many times do you see that in authority, in authority positions? That those that are the highest that have the most authority are above the law. And get, and get to get skirt around the law, skirt around the standard. But for pastors, we're not above the law. And we don't, we don't, we don't want to, we, we want to protect those that have fallen. We want to restore them. But scripture says that the reason that we do that, the reason that that should be done, is so that the whole congregation should have a sense of fear and reverence for God. That God's word is holy and it should be respected. And that those that have been given the responsibility to steward God's word and to live what they preach should be held to the highest standard. So that's, that's, the, that's the truth of Scripture. It's a difficult one. That, that's, that's my standard. That's, that's my life. You know, as I was reading this, I, I'm like, Lord, help me. Help me to live this. Help me to be true to what I say. When, 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 when I tell husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, help me to do that. Help me to not be disqualified because of my private life. So it's a constant prayer for me that I would live by the truth of God's word that I teach. So what, what, what are the qualifications for pastors? The standard of integrity that we hold up. We, we, Pastor Renee didn't really go deep into it, and I'm not going to go deep into it, but I, I just want to read them for you. First Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy and true. This is qualifications for pastors. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, the same meaning there, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. It means that he should be a one-woman man. should have eyes only for his wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Got to like having people in your house. Able to teach. You know that there's only one skill. All the other qualifications are character-driven. There's one skill a pastor should be able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. And his children, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. My father-in-law says, I'm disqualified. <laughs> he said, your kids are not submissive. What are you, what are you doing? So I, I don't know. Maybe I am disqualified, but I'm struggling with my children. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Shouldn't have just got saved. Hey, you just got saved uh, six months ago. You want to be a pastor? It's not a good idea. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. What does the world think about him? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So those are the qualifications. That's the standard of integrity. And the church 
must uphold a standard of integrity for their pastors. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've heard both ideas. There's ideas out there. Some com- commentators have said that a pastor cannot be a divorced man. He can only have been married once. But that's not, when you study that phrase, the husband of one wife, in the original language, it has a picture of a one-woman man, meaning the, the condition of his heart, his heart attitude, that he is a one-woman man. He has eyes for one woman. And so there's whole denominations that will not put divorced pastors into, into ministry. If you're a divorced man, you won't be in, in ministry. Well, our pastor wouldn't be in ministry had he stayed in a, a, the, the denomination that he was in. Uh, but you see the fruit of his life. So that, 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 that's not what that is saying. So, so it's definitely, you know, if you're a Mormon and you believe that you can have multiple wives, and well, I guess it really does do away with that one. But but spiritually, it has to do with the intents of the man's heart. He has eyes for one woman. He's sexually pure. So that's the standard. But the overarching principle in First Timothy three one of the the standard for integrity it says there it says that the elder, the overseer, the pastor must be above reproach. That above reproach is the umbrella that covers all those other qualifications. Being above reproach is the overarching requirements for elders and pastors. The rest of the, of the qualifications elaborate on what it means to be above reproach. No overt, flagrant sin, no overt, flagrant sin can mar the life of one who must be an example for people to follow. You guys got it? That's, what it, that, that's the qualification for being a pastor. So if, so if you're in here, you're thinking about being a pastor, if we're called to be a pastor, this is... This is the standard you have to live by. Now, is it perfection? I mean, thank God it's not perfection. Now, you know, I mean, I, I, I am by no means, do I always like people in my house? By, by, by no means am I always, always hospitable and respectful. And sometimes I can get aggravated and irritated. But the direction of my life is in the direction of being above reproach. And there's no overt sin that should mar our life as pastors. Got it? Okay. And this, this is so, this is so practical and good though. This is, this is the, the type of stuff that was having to be taken care of in the church in Ephesus. Because there was issues going on with some bad leaders. Okay. So this next point as we're moving along here. Um, look at verse 22 through 25. It says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and ordaining somebody into ministry, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach or your frequent ailments. Ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others, they appear later. So also good works are, are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So the principle here is that Paul is saying here that the church should not be hasty in laying a hand of blessing on someone for leadership function, especially pastoral roles. In doing so, they will share in the blame for their misleading of God's people. So the, the, the fourth principle is this. Refuse to ordain unqualified men in positions of leadership. 
And so that's what he's saying there. That if you take somebody and you, you know, if I said, me and Pastor Mary, we got together and we, we thought, man, so-and-so would be a great pastor to come on staff and to work in ministry here. But we don't vet them properly. We don't, we don't look into what's their married life like. What are their kids like? What are their finances like? Do they manage their household well? Do, if we don't hold up the standard of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, those, quali- those qualifications, are they above reproach? If we don't hold those up and look at their life and compare it, we don't do our due diligence, but we are hasty. We lay our hands of ordination on them, and then they get into ministry, and then they, they mislead people. Paul is telling Timothy, if you do that, you're going to share in the responsibility of the sin that they're committing against those people because you didn't do your due diligence. That's a heavy responsibility. That's why when we ordain people, it is such a weighty thing that we do. Because we are saying that, that God's hand of blessing is on them to be an example for the church to follow. As a church, we must be slow in setting men apart for pastoral leadership. There must be a season of proving and training that takes place. Got to be slow about that because it's, again, in, in all of this context, it's so important that we have the right men in place to lead the church so that they will be faithful men. Okay, that scripture, let's go back to the text there. I told you I'd touch on the issue of wine there. Verse 23 says, kind of like in parentheses, by the way, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It's kind of strange that it's when you're first reading, why is it in that context? Why is it in there about not being hasty about laying hands on, on somebody too soon to be in pastoral ministry? The qualifications for elders were just in chapter 3. Paul just told Timothy, don't be a drunkard. If you're going to be in pastor, if you're going to be a pastor, don't be a drunkard. But he's having to tell him here, because of the issue of unfiltered and, and, and water that is not good for consumption, you need, to, you need to mix your water with some wine, some fermented juice that will help protect your stomach because you, you, you're getting sick by the type of water that you're drinking because of what you're consuming. And so because of your frequent ailments, because of your stomach, you need to take a little wine with your water. And that was common during that day. And so this is, again, when we get to a discussion about should Christians drink, what about Christian liberty, this is an argument that really isn't touched on very often. But... Wine then, compared to wine now, is not apples to apples. This is a great scripture that really deals with that. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine. Mix that wine with that water, so it will di- it will it's going to be di- diluted wine, so that you can drink it and survive and have liquid. But it's not going to mess up your stomach and cause you to be sick. And so the wine that we have now, the alcohol that we have now, the alcohol content is not apples to apples. And so, again, it's not a message about whether you should drink or not, but I just wanted to explain that verse to you. Okay, so let's move on to the final point here. Number five. Now, this is, again, we've covered kind of all of the, the verses there in 1 Timothy 5, the um, practical admonitions that um, Paul dealt with towards Timothy about pastors and elders and how, should, how they should be treated and how to confront and how to... Uh, remove pastors. But I just want to give you, kind of as a close here, just a refreshing view of what the church is supposed to look like. Again, healthy pastors, healthy churches. My fifth point I want to talk to you about is this in closing. When the church is healthy, it will be effective in its mission. When the church is healthy, it will be effective in its mission. When we have healthy, faithful, God-fearing pastors who faithfully teach the word of God, 
who walk in integrity, who are above reproach. And and the church is filled with people who have a heart of service and love for the church. We can be effective in our mission. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 talks about this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it's our responsibility as pastors to teach you God's word so you can become mature in the faith. So that you may not be tossed to and fro by by every wind of doctrine as what's going on in, in, in Ephesus here. And carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in, in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. With each part, when each part is working properly, the body, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when the pastor is doing his part by faithfully teaching and you're receiving that truth and you're growing up into mature manhood, then, then you find your place of service and you find your place of service and we work together for the building up of the body of Christ in love. And then another section of scripture, Romans 12, gives us a similar picture. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than, than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Not everyone's called to be a pastor. Not everyone's called to be a worship leader. Not everyone's called to be working children's ministry or whatever. You all have different giftings. Now, for as in one body, we have many members, and the, the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. That's just an interesting verse right there. God has given me a grace as a pastor to do this. And I pray every day that I will walk in the grace that God has given me in the gifting that he's given me. And in your place in the body of Christ, that's what you, you need to pray. What, what's your role? How are you functioning in the family of God at Living Word Church? However you're functioning, you need to say, God, give me the grace that I need to faithfully serve in that function. And it creates this beautiful picture of a body working together for the mission of the gospel. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, do it with with generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. So we all have different functions. But when we have a healthy pastor, and we have mature believers that are growing in Christ and they're walking in the grace of their giftings. It's a beautiful picture and the gospel is moved forward through healthy churches, healthy pastors, healthy churches. A body of believers that is led by qualified, mature, faithful men who teach God's word will will be a church that is filled with people who grow increasingly into the image of Christ. And are effective witnesses of the gospel. Amen? Alright. That's all I got tonight. You guys okay? Yeah? You know, 
I know I said some things that maybe are a little challenging on the mind to think about, but I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that the Bible is good. And I believe that our desire should be to honor God and His Word. And I believe that we are overly blessed to have a pastor like Pastor Renee. I believe that we, that we really are. I feel, you know, as I was studying this, thinking about him and his years of service here, and uh, I just felt like I wanted to pray for him tonight for us all. Why don't y'all stand with me? I just want to pray for our pastor. Yes, I'm so grateful for him and what he's done in his years of service and his faithfulness. I just want to pray for him. I know they're, they're going through a difficult season of their life. You, just, you think of all the different things. You know, their, their kids moved away to Texas. That was the first thing. So them grandbabies, any grandparents here? Imagine your grandkids, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you do know it. Maybe some of your grandkids are eight, nine hours away. So your grandkids are gone. That was a blow. It's difficult. I mean, I'm sure they love their kids, but they love their grandkids more. And so, and then, and then the issue that, that Vicky has been dealing with in her physical body, it's just been a real emotional toll on them. And when I think about their faithfulness, I think about what they're, what they're doing here, what they've been, what they have planted here, and the longevity of having no accusation against them. I just, I am so grateful and thankful. And I want us to pray for them. And I want them to feel our prayers. They're in Texas right now. He'll be back on Sunday to preach. But I want them, wherever they are, that God would move through our prayers and strengthen them. Father, we pray right now for Pastor Nay and Sister Vicki. And God, we thank you for a faithful man and a faithful woman. Through many ups and downs, through many good times and bad times, God, they have remained faithful. God, they have championed, they have pioneered and championed a work here in Homa that has had lasting impact on this entire region. And we are so thankful that they answered the call of God to come to Homa and to do a work for the sake of, of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless them, that you'd strengthen them even right now. God, wherever they are, whatever they're doing right now, I pray, Lord, that as we pray, that your Holy Spirit would touch them and minister to them and strengthen them, that they would be energized and strengthened, that you give them fresh vision and life for their future, Lord. God, we pray for Sister Vicky that her body would be touched and that it would be healed, that this cancer would be gone and that she would live out fully the days that you have preordained her to live. We thank you, Lord, that she will be well and be whole. God, we thank you for all these things. And thank you for our church, Lord. Thank you that your hand is with us. You are sustaining us and guiding us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.